Good morning. Uh, we are going to be in First Samuel chapter 18 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open it to First Samuel chapter 18. If you forgot to bring one, there are stacks in the back on the windowsills. Feel free to grab a Bible there. Or if you have the fancy Bible app, you can look it up there. Um, last week, Jeff preached on chapter 17 with this famous story of uh, David's victory over Goliath. A victory that from a purely physical standpoint seemed completely impossible, right? And yet, David wins the fight not because he had any physical advantage or armor or weaponry or any of that, but because God was with him and because of his great faith in God. And after this incredible scene, um, the king of Israel, Saul, naturally wants to know who is this remarkable boy. And that's where we pick up the story today. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him, and he gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. And in everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? 
So when the time came for Mirab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meholah. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king is pleased with you, and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and I'm little known. And when Saul's servant told him that what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. And when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michael, really loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out in battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. In this chapter, um, we really begin to see Saul's downward spiral and David's rise to power. The book of Samuel gives us these uh, detailed descriptions of David and Saul, and in this chapter as well, um, Jonathan, as character studies. And so we are actually invited to pause and self-reflect on these characters, seeing ourselves in them, taking note of the warnings that we see, but also taking note of the good examples of faithfulness that we see. So this morning, I want to invite us into taking note of two things. First, take note of the characters of Jonathan, Saul, and of David in this story. And then second, take note of how Jonathan and Saul respond to David's rise to power, to his success. Let's begin by looking at Jonathan in verses 1 to 4. After David had finished talking with Saul, this is right after his his great defeat of Goliath, Jonathan, Saul's son, begins this deep friendship with David. The text says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, that he loved him as himself, and he made a covenant with David. Now, in our day and in our culture, we can go in all kinds of different directions when we read uh, what this relationship would have looked like. And we tend to jump to the conclusion that any kind of deep, intimate relationship has to be a romantic one or a sexual one. But that's simply not the case um, in the Bible. The Bible teaches us that people can have incredibly meaningful 
and deep and even intimate friendships uh, that don't have to be sexual or romantic. Maybe you can even relate. Maybe you have um, a friend with whom you just instantly connect with on multiple levels. They're the kind of friend that um, sees the world through a similar lens as you do. Uh, you might have similar interests, similar sense of humor. When you laugh together, it almost sounds like the same laugh, right? This friend may have a very similar expression of faith as you do, and they would do anything for you, and they're that one friend who just simply gets you. Has anyone ever had a friend like that? A couple people, a few people? They are rare, but if you have a friend like that, count that as an incredible blessing. And I believe, and so do many commentators, that this is kind of the kind of friendship we are to picture that is forming between Jonathan and David. The text said that they were one in spirit, and why, why would that be? Well, we can look at how similar their faith and their experiences were. In 1 Samuel 14, if you remember, Jonathan is the one who displays great faith as he walks right into the Philistine outpost with his armor bearer, completely outnumbered, they take on 20 Philistine soldiers, and Jonathan is confident in God's protection. Then in chapter 17, what Jeff spoke about last week, Jonathan would have seen David expressing that same kind of faith, but to an even greater extent when confronting Goliath, someone that Jonathan was not willing to confront. And so these experiences and faith expressions make Jonathan and David kindred spirits. And in verse three and four, Jonathan makes a covenant with David and he gives David his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. What is the significance of these gifts and this covenant? Well, think about Jonathan's position. He's the prince of Israel. He would be next in line for the throne. So what's happening here is actually very significant. By making a covenant with David, he's likely pledging some kind of allegiance to serve and protect David. And by giving David his royal robe and his weapons, Jonathan is relinquishing his status as Israel's future king. He is recognizing that this position belongs to David. He gives him his robe. Where else have we come across a text about robes and kingship? Chapter 15. The prophet Samuel in chapter 15 rebuked Saul for his blatant disobedience to God. And as he's leaving, Saul grabs his robe and it tears. To which Samuel responds, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. The robes represent power and Saul tries to cling to his power as it is being torn from him and Jonathan, on the other hand, is giving it away. Let's have a look at Saul. Remember, Saul actually does not yet know that David has been anointed by Samuel as king. He doesn't know that yet. But he is weary of the fact that the kingdom will be taken from him. Samuel told him that a few chapters ago. 
So Saul initially likes David a lot. He's his musical therapist, right? And he just defeated Goliath. So Saul gives him a high rank in the military and this pleases everyone. But Saul's opinion of David changes very quickly when jealousy takes root in his heart. Verse 6, when the army comes home from the battle and they're welcomed by this this joyful parade, picture a homecoming parade for, for the troops, the tune that is being sung says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And this made Saul very angry, verse 8. They credit David with more than they credit their own king. That's not fair. I'm the king, not David. But here's something really interesting that most commentators notice. You see, that song was actually never meant to compare Saul with David. Commentators point out that this phrase, thousands and tens of thousands, was a very common phraseology in Hebrew poetry. And never is it meant literally, and never is it used to compare. Take, for example, Psalm 91. It says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. Or Micah 6, 7 says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? These terms are actually not meant to be taken literally or as a comparison. It was a nonpartisan victory song celebrating both the king and David. However, Saul takes it as the worst, in the worst possible way, and he becomes jealous. And I think there's an invitation here to self-reflect. Remember, these are character studies. We're meant to pause and reflect and ask, do I ever get jealous at the sight of someone else's success? Do you find it hard to enjoy and celebrate when the spotlight is not on you? Or when someone didn't give you as much credit as you thought you were due? Jealousy is a very real struggle. And if it's not nipped in the bud, jealousy is like a dandelion in that it grows quick and it spreads to other areas of our life and, it, and its roots go deep. And I know all you green thumbs are going to come at me after and say, did you know dandelions are actually good? Yes, the metaphors all break down somewhere. But the point is they grow quick. They spread quick. The roots go deep. And so does jealousy. And it begins to trouble Saul's mind. Verse 10, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house. Um, I actually prefer some other translations that say, He was raving like a madman in his house. Prophecy can be used in a good sense or as a crazy person. And in this context, it would be um, more fitting to say he was raving like a madman in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. That's why David played the harp, right? Was to soothe him, to calm him. David is the one person who can soothe Saul's troubled mind But David is the object of Saul's jealousy as well. And so what does he try to do? He tries to kill him twice. What do you notice about Saul's attack? I mean, we notice Saul's not a very good spear thrower, right? Either that or David just invented dodgeball and he's really good at it. 
But what we're supposed to notice is that Saul uses a spear. Who is the only other character in this story so far who has had a spear? Goliath. Our commentators point out that we're meant to see a connection between Goliath and Saul here. Goliath, a Philistine giant, an enemy of God, comes at David with a spear, and then in the very next scene, Saul, an Israelite Israelite giant, remember he's described as being a head taller than everyone, an anointed representative of God, also attacks David with a spear. David faced two giants back to back, very different giants. And we like the story of David and Goliath because we get to see David crushing his enemy, right? He gets to fight and exterminate the enemy. But how does David fight Saul? He doesn't fight him with a sling or a stone. Neither does he take Saul's spear off the ground and throw it back. There's the scene of David's weapon in this scene is a harp, an instrument of peace, a skill that was meant to bring healing, a service to help soothe Saul. And as we will see in coming chapters, David never attacks Saul. He evades, he escapes, yes, he even acts shrewdly, but he never attacked the one who was anointed by God. And one commentator points out that in our lives, the likelihood is far greater that we will encounter Saul-type giants in our lives, more so than we will face Goliaths, right? We encounter difficult people within the church, within the family of God, who are troubled, who are unhealthy emotionally and spiritually, and the way that we deal with Saul-type characters is going to be very different than how we deal with Goliaths. As Christians, we're not to attack one another. But when there is unhealth and immaturity and toxic people within the family of God, you and I, like David, we may need to use our gifts. Jeff pointed to this last, last week or the week before. We may need to use our gifts to offer healing to offer prayer, to offer care, but at the same time, like David, realize that you cannot be their savior. I cannot be another person's savior. And so we may need to be shrewd enough to keep a healthy distance and not allow the unhealth and toxicity of other people to attack and consume you. Verse 12 Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. This is both a really encouraging verse and it's a pretty sobering verse. If you are in Christ, know that God is for you. Paul reminds the Christians in Romans 8.31, that text that Jeff led us into reflecting on, If God is for us, who can be against us? We as Christians need to be reminded of this regularly. But 1 Samuel 18, 12 is also a sobering one as we see that the Spirit of God departed Saul. Due to his repeated blatant disobedience, his lack of repentance, and therefore his abdication of godly leadership, the Lord departed from Saul. And this can be 
easy to misread and think, well, wait a minute, does this mean that if I mess up or if I struggle with a sin, that God is going to take his spirit away from me? No, that's not what this is saying. David, we know, committed some massive dark sins. And as we'll discover in future chapters, and yet he's known as a man after God's own heart. And I think Jesus also, in a way, expected his followers to miss the mark daily because he taught them to pray the Lord's prayer daily. And in that, we ask for forgiveness. We confess our mistakes, our mess-ups. So making mistakes, struggling with even a habitual sin, messing up, does not disqualify you from God's family or his grace or his anointing. But what we have with Saul is a continuous disobedience. He cannot even acknowledge his own sin or take responsibility for the wrong he has done. Everything gets justified, gets minimized, gets spiritualized. There's no repentance in his heart, and his heart is far from God. Saul has abdicated his role to be a godly leader, and this God will not bless, and he does not condone. But what we need to remember is God's default position to his creatures is that he is for you. He's not against you. God creates out of love, and he desires to be in relationship with those he creates, so much so that he became human and died for us so that anyone who turns to him can have the free gift of eternal life and a redeemed relationship between creator and created and between our fellow humans. So the ultimate question is not whether God is for you, but are you for him? Uh, President Lincoln, um, I read this little snippet, in the Civil War, in the U.S. Civil War, President Lincoln was once asked, do you, think that, um, do you think that God is on your side? And his response was, I'm less concerned about whether God is on my side. I'm more concerned about whether we are on his side. God was with David, and in following verses, we see this manifested. Whatever Saul intends for evil, you'll notice, God will use for David's good. And this reminds us of an earlier story in Genesis where Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 15, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. Let's take a look at how every time Saul tried to get David killed, God used it to further bless David. He already tried twice, right, directly, by throwing a spear and he failed. Maybe he was still sane enough to realize this is kind of bad PR for my kingdomship and political stuff, so I'm going to try an indirect approach. Next, in verse 13, Saul sends David away, and he gives him command over a thousand men. Saul is likely hoping that by sending David out to more battles, he'd be exposed to more risk and eventually get killed. But then in verse 14 to 16, we read again, in everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And now, not only that, now all of Israel and Judah loved David. For he, and this all made Saul even more afraid. So Saul tries another tactic. He thinks, okay, maybe I'll distract him. 
I'll distract his focus in battle with a woman. So Saul invites David to become his son-in-law by marrying his older daughter, Mirab. As long as David, he says, just go out and display more bravery and fight the Lord's battles. He's urging him to go take more risks. And he thinks surely a little extra display of bravery will increase the risk factor and the distraction of love will get David killed. David says, I'm not worthy to become a king's son-in-law. But he does keep fighting the battles because it says when the time came for Saul to give his daughter in marriage, this is implying he did go out and fight battles. Saul goes back on his word and he gives his daughter to another man. So what's next? Well, Saul doesn't get too creative beyond what he's already tried, so he tries that same tactic again with his second daughter, Michael. But this time he thinks, this time it's going to work because Michael actually is in love with David. She'll be a snare to him. He'll lose his focus on the battlefield. Maybe Michael can even cause David to lose his devotion to God. As we'll see in following chapters, she had idols, which she likely worshipped. So maybe that was part of Saul's reasoning. Maybe she can distract him from being devoted to God. Maybe her love can distract him from being focused on the battles. You know those movies, those battle movies, those war movies? The guy who takes out the picture of his beloved, don't ever do it. He's always getting killed in the next scene, right? It's so sad, but you can expect it. Every time in battle, somebody pulls out a picture of their loved one, you're like, they're dead the next scene. They're gone. This time though, David comes back with a similar response. He says, I'm not worthy to become the king's son-in-law. Don't you know that I am just from a lowly family? I don't have any money. So Saul says, you know what? You don't, give, you don't need to give me any money or sheep, since you're a shepherd, for the dowry. The dowry price is 100 Philistine foreskins. And I read that as a youth pastor and I have all kinds of jokes lined up which I will refrain from. But we think, what a strange and kind of gross dowry request, right? True. But why does he make such a strange request? Well, simply put, what is the one thing that Philistine men have that Israelite men don't have? Right. All of Israel's men are circumcised and their enemies are not. So you can connect the dots. What Saul was asking for is proof that David really did kill a hundred Philistines. After all, there's no way that David could possibly accomplish that without getting killed, right? Wrong. David shows up not with 100 dowry presents, but with 200. And some unfortunate fellow had the job of counting them. <laughs> and this time, Saul can't back away from his offer, and David marries his daughter, Michael. Verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was, was with David and that his daughter, Michael, loved him, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. 
Notice that it's mentioned three times in this chapter that Saul was afraid of David, and each time because the Lord was with him. Twice it's mentioned because the Lord was with him and he had success, and another time because the Lord was with him and his daughter actually loved him. Notice also that even Saul's family is divided. First, his son Jonathan becomes David's most committed friend, even acknowledging David as the future king. And now Saul's own daughter, who he intended to be a snare, is committed and loves David. And you'll see in next chapter, she even protects him. Everything Saul intends for evil, God used for David's good. Because David was a man after God's own heart, and because God was with David. What are the signs that God was with David? There's some really clear signs we've already mentioned of how God's presence with David was manifested. First, David is protected from harm, right? The spears. He experienced success in the work given to him. David experiences affirmation and acceptance by the people of Israel and Judah. And David experiences love from a faithful, committed friend and from his wife, both who are family of Saul's. These were the tangible and visible signs that God was with him. That's just in this chapter alone. So what are the lessons from the text? I think there's a lot in here, but I want to leave us with three that, um, that were maybe challenges to me in my own life, and so I will share those. And the first one is an invitation. How will you respond to Christ's kingship over your life today? If in this story David is the Christ figure, then perhaps the question for us is, will we respond like Saul, clinging to our own autonomy, doing whatever it takes to remain the Lord of our own lives, deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong in the moment? Or will we respond like Jonathan, surrendering our whole selves to the true king and saying, Jesus, you are the rightful king over my life. And I'm going to make a covenant and be committed to you. And I'm going to love you. The invitation is ours and it's our choice. I invite you to respond like Jonathan rather than Saul. And I think that's something we need to do every day. How are we going to respond to Christ's kingship today and tomorrow and the day after? Second, addressing your own dark side or your own character flaws. We all have them. Yet, if we're honest, probably none of us really like to look at them honestly. But as Tim Mackey from The Bible Project points out, the character of Saul serves as a warning of what can happen to any one of us when we fail to reflect on our own character flaws and when we fail to address them. He says it's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and how they harm other people. And then with God's help, we need to humble ourselves and deal with our dark side so that Saul's story does not become our story. This is uncomfortable work, friends, and it is hard work because sometimes 
I'm not even self-aware of what my greatest character flaws are and how they are hurting me or hurting those around me. And this is where humility and vulnerability are required. Pray for the Spirit to reveal those areas of brokenness in you. We can pray with David. Actually, in Psalm 139, he does this. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. And then follow up with that prayer and maybe ask the one or two or three closest people to you to help you see your character flaws. That's hard. But that's not even the hardest part. The next part is the hardest part, is to then try and not be defensive and to listen to what these people who are closest to you have to say. Maybe you want to see a professional counselor who can help raise self-awareness and give you tools to grow. Other really helpful resources that have been helpful for me um, include the Enneagram or the Emotional Healthy Spirituality course. Uh, There's lots of great resources which help us reflect on our lives to see both the good but also those shadow sides which we're not always aware of. Reflect on your character flaws and then address them. Have the courage to address them. And then finally, commit your works to the Lord. If God is for you, who can stand against you? We look at David's story in this chapter alone, right? And, and in the preceding chapters, he experienced the neglect and abuse from his own family. He served faithfully the king of Israel only to be mistreated by him backstabbed, deceived. David was probably unfairly thrown into all kinds of battles which were not safe, which were probably not in his odds to win, but through all of it, David stayed faithful to God, committed to working with excellence in all that he did, whether that was as a shepherd, a poet and a musician, or as a warrior, or later as a king, and God rewarded him for it. Maybe in your trials and in your hardships, It might seem hard, or it might seem as though God is not with you. But as Proverbs 16.3 reminds us, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. So our invitation this morning is to surrender to the true king, to address our dark side, and then to commit our works to the Lord, because he is for you, He's not against you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Amen.